Welcome to Women Behind the Scenes. I'm Eloise Singer, a filmmaker and founder, and this is a podcast that shines a light on the creators behind some of the most impactful and acclaimed movies of the moment. Odessa Ray is the producer of the Oscar-nominated film Navalny, a powerful documentary about the Russian politician who dared to speak out against Putin. After Navalny survived a targeted assassination attempt, Odessa and director Daniel Ruhr traveled to the Black Forest to document the pressing question on everyone's mind. Who tried to kill him? And they captured an extraordinary conversation on camera, which went viral overnight. This moment is at the heart of the documentary, a film which has been called thrilling by The Times and riveting by The Guardian. Odessa had just landed in New York, so we jumped on a call to chat through her journey of making the film and the risks that she faced along the way. Vladimir Putin faces a legitimate opponent, Alexei Navalny. I don't want Putin being president. If I want to be a leader of a country, I have to organize people. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much that they refuse to say his name. Passengers heard Navalny cry out in agony. Come on. Poisoned? Seriously? We are creating a coalition to fight this regime. If you are killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? It's very simple. Never give up. Really excited to be chatting with you and to learn more about Navalny, which is one of the most extraordinary documentaries that I've seen in a long time. The narrative almost plays out a bit like a thriller but with this incredible access and such an important story behind it. Well, thank you so much. I think Navalny is really a product of just following your intuition and taking risks. And I think these are two of the most important things that you have to do when you make anything creative, probably, or anything in life. And it's really scary. And a lot of people also don't have the luxury of being able to take a lot of risks. But if you do, even if you think that it's something that won't work out, I would say take the risk and, and follow your intuition. Because if you, if you trace it back through my life, I was at the end of making another documentary about a group of Syrians in Berlin who were like rock stars and musicians and sort of making their way in a new country post the Syrian war. And towards the end of that documentary, I was invited to a conference in Abu Dhabi. And when I was at this conference, I made a few friends. And one of those friends randomly invited me to a wedding in Jordan. And I just thought, why not? You know, just say yes. So I went to this wedding in Jordan and that night I was invited to dinner and I sat across from a very fascinating man who ended up being the best friend of Christo Grozev. And Christo Grozev is one of the main characters in the Navalny documentary. At this time, Christo was not very well known. He was a Bellingcat journalist who mostly published without his name. So he would just publish under the label of Bellingcat and he stayed anonymous. And he was digging into an investigation in Ukraine around an intelligence plot to capture 32 Wagner fighters. Wagner is the private military company of Putin. But before meeting Christo, I met Daniel, the director of Navalny. 
And we just met also by chance at a screening of his last film, Once We're Brothers. And you just kind of get a vibe of someone. And Shane Boris, one of the other producers on the film, had actually brought me to that screening. So the three of us were like, we should find something to work on together, you know? And sure enough, those conversations continue. Christo comes into our lives. Daniel, the director, and myself decide to take this risk and go to Vienna to meet with Christo and ultimately went to Ukraine. We had no money. I think we had talked to a few companies about potentially giving us some early startup money, but you know how it is with that early startup money. They try and own a lot of the project and we knew we had something good. And so took the risk, started putting it on my credit card, which was stressing me out, but went to Ukraine, tried to get these interviews. It wasn't going very well. We actually ended up being put on a surveillance list. After about 10 days of trying, we decided to go back to Vienna with Christo and sort of recalculate, figure out if this film was possible, etc. And it was, I think, on that flight back to Vienna, Navalny's poisoning was sort of happening in the ether around us. We were clocking it in the international news. And Christo being Christo just decided to start investigating this poisoning. And it was on the way back that he said, I think I'm going to go meet this source that could be a lead into who poisoned Alexei Navalny. And, you know, Daniel and I, upon hearing that, we were aware that this was a huge story in the media. And we were like, wait, you know this guy? You can get access? Uh, He was like, well, no, but I'm going to DM him on Twitter. And sure enough, unknown to us at the time, but the Navalny team were expecting Christo to eventually reach out with hopefully maybe collaborating to try and pinpoint some of the people that were involved in poisoning Alexei Navalny. And so when Christo reached out, he he not only said, hey, 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 Navalny, I think I have a lead into who tried to kill you. But he also said, and I'm working with this documentary team and I trust them and you should really be filming right now. And it took about three weeks, put some more camera rental gear on my credit card, packed a rental car and drove with Christo, myself and Daniel into the Black Forest where Alexei was recovering from the poisoning, Navalny. Obviously, I was with him for many months. So I remember even the first day I thought of him as Navalny, Navalny, but his first name is Alexei. So sometimes I forget that and refer to him as that. But we got to the Black Forest. We sat down with Navalny and Maria Pevchik, who is his lead investigator. And she's sort of like the gatekeeper. You know, she's very, very tough, tough as nails. She was scary to us, you know, when we first met her. And and Nivaldi was very much like, hey guys, nice to meet you. Great, come in, you know, like, how's it going? You want to film? Let's talk about it. And Maria was like, no. (laughs) So nothing was for sure. You know, we sort of had this initial meeting where we made it very clear that we were here and we were ready to film starting tomorrow. And we were actually surprised that no one else was in there already, you know, like other filmmakers who actually I found out had reached out, but they're very cautious. And so they didn't let anyone into their sphere yet. And I think Christo sort of vouching for us, the fact that we just showed up in the Black Forest, we had all our camera gear, we were like, Listen, why don't we try? You know, it was there was no guarantees. Why don't we try? Two weeks in, two months in. If you if you don't like it, we'll we'll stop and we'll give you all the footage. But you're in this incredible moment. It would be a waste to not film what's happening, you know? 
And that's how we started. The next morning, I think 9 a.m., I think that was the day that we actually, we were like, Navalny, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And he said, I'll probably take a walk with Yulia and uh, I have my trainer coming because he was recovering from the poisoning. And we were like, can we come and film that? And so we showed up at his house and went for a little walk with him. And I believe that was the morning that we shot that beautiful little walk with him, Yulia, visiting their friends, Donkey and Pony, as we call them. So that's sort of how it started. It's an amazing whirlwind that you went through to get to that point. How did you go about building that trust with Alexi and his team if initially they had this hesitation towards a documentary team coming in and filming them? Well, I think their main concern was actually that we were foreign intelligence, you know, that we were working for some intelligence. And so they asked us things like to see our bank accounts, to see if we were getting money from foreign governments, you know. And I think they determined at the end of it, we were sort of willing. We're like, yes, here's here's the bank accounts, you know, here's da da And they were also concerned about Hollywood. And so this is where I had to be like, well, listen, there's no Hollywood, there's just me and my bank account and I'll, I'll pay for it right now, which was very, very stressful. I'm not someone who's like, can't just pay for things, but I had a few credit cards and you just, you know, that's why you say, you follow your intuition. I knew this was, this was gold, you know, this was a real moment. And so this is how we had to do it. It's just simple. It's just us, Here's everything that you ask for on us. And again, no insurance policy. So let's start. Let's try it a week in, a couple weeks in, a month in. If you don't like it, we'll stop and you have all the footage. So I think it was like that, that we just, after spending time together, after being a very, very tiny crew, just myself, Daniel, and Daniel was the one filming in the beginning, honestly. And then I searched the area, found a DP who was willing to come out for almost no no pay, which I then made up for after we got a full budget, but just begging everyone to work for free, had their own equipment. We had a DP and a sound guy, myself and Daniel, just handling this crazy production, you know, 20 hour days. I mean, if you see photos of us during that time, Daniel and I are just exhausted every single day, you know, just scraping things together, begging for this, begging for that, beg, borrow, steal, you know, apologize later. This was sort of how we just had to sort of band together. And everyone lived in one house together. I found this Airbnb in the Black Forest where he was recovering in Freiburg. So it was the middle of COVID. There was this big house empty and we managed to rent it for, for very little money. And I said to Navalny, hey, look, you need a workspace. It's COVID. Why don't you just make this house your workspace? And so that's the house where we actually shot the phone call, where they built the suspect board on the wall. So the, my bedroom door is literally like right behind the suspect. Board. You can see it in the back shot of the, the phone call. You know, they came over at 4.30 in the morning that day to start those phone calls, which we started at 5.30 a.m., which was 7.30 a.m. Russia, sort of when people were waking up, couldn't think clearly yet, you know, weren't at the office, couldn't double check things. But this was this was sort of how it went. It was just like everyone lived in that Airbnb. Krista was sleeping on the couch. Everyone, you know, I at least had a bedroom. Daniel was in the sort of makeshift loft lobby area. You know, it was just, it was 
can't make a movie, as Daniel later called it, you know? <laughs> exactly. It feels like one of those moments that you make the movie of the behind the scenes because it's also as unbelievable as the movie that you're making at the same time. Yeah, it, it, that would have been ama an amazing movie. And we started shooting behind the scenes when we were in Ukraine because we were getting surveilled, you know? All of a sudden, there's guys waiting for us outside our hotel. There's guys following us. There's You pull out, you walk out of a restaurant, guys pulling out. So we did actually turn the cameras on ourselves. And even the morning we shot the phone call, everyone was just freaked out. We just thought, oh, oh, holy shit, like if the FSB are actually doing their job, they'll bust through that door and shoot us all and take this footage because we thought this footage will take down the Russian government. Sadly, truth doesn't seem to break through as much as it should. You know, we saw that phone call at, in that, that morning. We were like, he's done. Putin's done. You know? And the minute the phone call ended, everyone was just screaming like, upload the footage. You know, Daniel turned to me and he was like, Odessa, you guard the door. You know, just like tiny, like little skinny girl. <laughs> I, I go guard the door with the incoming FSB agents. Fine. You know, while they upload footage, like I said, there was only a few of us. So, but it was um, definitely the behind the scenes was, you know, Alexei's story is obviously the most powerful narrative there, but it would, it would add for some funny outtakes. I'm sure. I'm sure as well. And that phone call, I'd love to touch on it and talk a bit more about it because obviously it's the midpoint, it's a pinnacle moment in the film and it is such an extraordinary recording. How did it feel to be in the room when that was playing out? Well, I don't speak Russian, sadly, but, you know, there were several phone calls that happened leading up to that phone call. And also we knew we knew what was going to happen. You know, Alexei Navalny actually came up with that idea, I think the day that we met him or, or the second day, maybe, because Christo was showing him the identities of this kill team that he was uncovering. And Navalny was like, well, we should just phone them and see if they pick up. And if they pick up, we'll just say, hey, this is Navalny. Why'd you try and kill me? Like, just sort of like, why the heck not? We're going to reveal their identities anyways. So I knew Navalny was going to do that, but I didn't fully understand that he was going to do this whole trick way where he pretended to be Petrushev and, you know, try and trick them into thinking he needed to write this report. So when the conversation just started and kept going and we saw, I think the moment was like Maria and Christo's reactions. Maria's jaw basically hit the floor and Christo covering his mouth and his eyes going wide. You know, we knew something crazy was going down. And then we just waited. And actually that phone call went on for 50 minutes. So it went on for almost an hour. We, we put seven minutes in the film, but he warms him up and then he starts pushing it and then he pushes it some more. And you can actually hear the full recording of the phone call online. We did publish it. And you see how he like keeps pushing it because Navalny thought, okay, he's already like given me all this information. He's going to shut down now. So he just pushes it again. And the guy just kept going for it. He just didn't clue in, you know, he was a little bit sick. He, I think, really believed that the guy on the other end of the phone needed to come up with this report. And he just, he just kept giving answers. And so 
this was so shocking. Like by the end of the phone call, I think Navalny had even run out of questions. He was just kind of like, all right, well, uh, he was getting bored at this point. Like I couldn't believe that, you know, this guy had revealed so much. It was just finding a way to get off the phone call. But yeah, that was the day that Daniel and I looked at ourselves, looked at each other, and we were like, holy shit, we, we have a film. It's an extraordinary moment. Recording that piece of history ultimately is monumental. As a documentary filmmaker, how did you find that process of thinking about that footage and recording that footage? It's, it's multifaceted because... Like you see a little bit in the film, we were concerned with what was going to happen to this guy. And we even on another night tried to call him to see if we could get a hold of him to potentially try and help with some kind of evacuation, you know, because he just does a job like, I mean, the job is killing people. So it's, it's like you can't have too much sympathy for him. But at the same time, it was definitely there was this conflict, you know, that we could have just gotten a guy killed this morning. And yet, for the sake of telling a greater truth, it's something you have to decide for yourself. And I think we all felt that the need for this truth to come out was important enough to take that risk, you know. And yeah, it's a challenging decision because it's not something nice to live with that you could be getting someone killed or just in a seriously bad position, you know? We actually found him. So he's still alive, thankfully. But basically one of Maria and Christo's hobbies for the last year has been trying to find Kudratsev. And for a year and a half, there was just no sign of him. And then this past summer, he actually surfaced via some data that Christo and Maria got off the black market in a COVID test. So he was tested for COVID again. And there was his name. And he's still alive, it seems. And they probably just gave him some very boring desk job in the middle of nowhere. Because one thing I have learned through Christo and just their understanding of how the Russian government works is they don't necessarily kill idiots, they kill traitors. So this guy was just an idiot and he was probably demoted to a very boring desk job in the middle of Siberia or something like that. That's so interesting that they managed to locate him and that he's still alive. One of the questions I really wanted to ask you was just in terms of your own personal safety, and you mentioned it a little bit about how people were following you and it felt that there was some sort of threat towards you as filmmakers. I'd be really interested to learn about how you navigated that experience. That's very real, you know, and it's something that haunts me and plagues me and me less than my subjects. You know, Maria and Christo, every day their lives are in danger, and I, I'm very close to them and I care. And uh, Christo is actually, as of a few weeks ago, he's the first foreigner who's been put on Russia's most wanted list. And he cannot leave the United States because they will kill him in Europe. It's, it's for some reason, something else I've learned. There's this sort of unspoken policy that Russia doesn't kill on American soil. But they have no problem killing in the UK, in Austria, 
in Germany. They killed a guy last year. So Christo is now sort of marooned in the United States. He can't see his wife and kids. Maria lives in Lithuania. And, you know, she calls me sometimes when she starts to feel funny because the very real outcome of that is that she's potentially been poisoned. You know, it's something real. It's something that we deal with. And myself, I've actually been in Ukraine for the past eight months, quite a bit, making another documentary. So I went back to Ukraine when we stopped shooting Navalny. Went back and forth, obviously. During the edit, I was with Navalny. But after the Sundance premiere, three weeks later, the war broke out in Ukraine. And I went back to Ukraine to make another documentary. And being in Ukraine, Yes, I have been told that I'm taking a risk that I could be kidnapped. And if I was kidnapped, the Russian propaganda machine already made a disinformation campaign about me that I was a foreign agent, that I was working for the CIA. And my goal through the Navalny film was to take down the Russian government. So I would potentially be kidnapped and tried as a spy. And they can do that quite easily in Ukraine. So in the early days, I would sort of you know, constantly be looking behind my shoulder or scared when I'm walking alone at night. But now I get used to it. It's weird what you get used to. And you just sort of walk. At some point, you just have to live your life and you can't live your life in fear. So you take a risk. But I do believe that this, these stories are worth the risk. You know, the, peop- the world deserves to know the truth. That's very brave. And it's very inspiring to hear, to be honest with you. The documentary I'm making is also an investigative documentary and there have been moments where I've had exactly the same feeling. I've walked down the street by myself and been afraid. So to hear it feel like it gets a bit easier is quite reassuring. Gets much easier. Now I just go in and out of Ukraine on the night train by myself, sleep like a baby. I don't know if it's naive or you just get used to it, but um, you do. And I think the most important thing is you just can't be afraid. And this was the main reason why Alexei went back is because he's like, Odessa, I'm a Russian politician. At that time, the precedent had been set that if you stay outside of Russia, you become irrelevant. And so his like mission in life is to transform that government, to take down Putin, which is someone who has raped and pillaged that country for the last 22 years for his oligarch circle, you know? It's been a time of incredible economic boom in Russia that has all just lined the pockets of Putin and his friends. And he was like, how can I tell a a population to not be afraid and then sit comfortably in Germany? We have to listen to that message. Like he's sitting in prison for that message. You know, how can I not live by that message? Do you feel that the film has impacted on you personally in terms of you've been living and breathing this narrative for so long? Has that had a lasting effect? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just being around these kind of people that live for a bigger purpose. I got to spend months with Navalny. Just as I said, it was a small crew. So I would be the one picking him up at 7.30 in the morning to drive to the snow to catch the snow shot, you know, or Daniel had gone ahead to sort of set up cameras, etc. And you just get to chat with someone who just lives for a bigger purpose, lives to change something, believes in change, you know, believes that the impossible is possible. I feel like before living in this sphere, you know, you think more about like, your life and 
paying a bill or something like that. And now it puts it all into perspective. You're like, wait, people are dying because of ideology. You know, as being in Ukraine as well, I've been there for the last eight months. It's so hard for me to even face myself when I get upset about trivial stuff. I'm like, God, you're so, so stupid. Just get on with it. There's so much that we should be grateful for every day. You just, you have to have some massive gratitude, you know? I totally hear you. It's very easy to take things for granted when there are people out there, as you say, who are striving and fighting to make such a difference in the world mm -hmm. and conveying such important messages. Navalny is one of those that he was so inspiring to watch did you feel that he had this sort of larger-than-life character when you first met him? Because it's conveyed so beautifully in the film. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that. You meet him and you're like, oh, that's a president. You know, that aura and that the way of speaking and the way of commanding a room. And he's incredibly generous with himself. He really is the way that he's portrayed on the film. He's very organic, very natural, very giving of himself. A little bit shy, you know, you can see that, but like broke through the shyness. He was actually the shy person, he told me back in the day. You know, he never really wanted to be the one out front, the politician running for office. He was a lawyer and he just would have rather done his work behind the scenes. But he soon realized that in the room, no one else was speaking up. And so he had to speak up, you know, and he's gotten better, but he, he, he definitely still has that shy layer. He's someone who, you know, you're like, how can he do that to his family? But for him, loving his family is fighting for a better future for them. It really comes across in the film like that as well. And his family is so supportive of him and believe in what he's doing. And it's depicted as such a tender relationship between him and his wife and his children. And it is. It is. That's really nice to hear. At first, we, we were like looking at it on Instagram, you know, Daniel and I were sort of scanning their Instagram and reading all the articles about them. And we we're like, really? Their marriage can't be like this. Like, it just looks too perfect. Obviously, this is like an Instagram marriage. And then let's just like get in there and see what's really going on, you know? And they were just like, just like that, just cuddly after 22 years of marriage or something just cuddling up to each other like going for rock walks together so finding a day off you know it was just so sweet you're just like wow I mean it's rare and and Yulia just was just so I mean Alexei used to joke that she was the more radical one I was like well what about you know is she we were all thinking like she probably doesn't want him to go back but no Yulia is just right there if that's his decision, I support it. This is important. We have to face this regime. And she was just lockstep with him just every step of the way. That's amazing. Really amazing. I'd love to learn a bit about the actual filmmaking process and how you guys went through it. So obviously you went to Germany and you stayed with them and you filmed whilst you were there. Did you begin the edit whilst you were filming or did the edit come later? How did it work? We finished filming a few weeks after Navalny went back to Russia. And during while we were filming, I was obviously looking to build out the team because it was just, like I said, me and Daniel sort of, you know, there was no budget. There was just handling production. 
And then we were working on another film actually with Diane Becker, Melanie Miller, and Shane Boris. And we really liked them and trusted them. And so we started talking to them about them coming on board. And this is where Diane, it was almost like a relay race. And I got to pass the baton to her for a while, even though we discussed everything together and worked on everything together, she started to really captain the ship, which was just very, very helpful. I mean, she's much more experienced producer than me. She's produced 10 documentaries. I produced two and a half, you know? So Diane really came in as my partner and Shane Boris, who is a producer that I just trust and work with and am working with still and has great taste. And he and Diane and I really started building out like, who are the editors? How are we going to do this? You know, everything, all communication had to happen via, you know, encrypted messaging. We did not, as a film team, I think, send an email for a year. We all had to put in place various security protocols that are different. For example, I'll pull out my little security key right here, which is like, I can't just put a fingerprint on my computer to open it. I have to use this external USB stick, enter it into my USB-C portal, and that's how I open my computer. The security stuff, you know, it's clunky in the beginning, but you just got to get the, the hang of it. And me, I'm someone who like every password was hello, happy 108, you know, and, and, and it just was an extreme climb to this new security realm, which I'm now quite comfortable in, but we had to edit offline. You know, we couldn't edit in like an edit facility because the project had to stay completely secret. And right up until the Sundance premiere, they wouldn't announce our film because they had been hacked when they premiered Icarus, their ticketing systems were hacked. And so they were nervous about that happening again. So our film was announced 24 hours before, which was kind of crazy because we were at Sundance and they also put our film last so that all the films had premiered. And then there's the announcement of our film and the premiere 24 hours later. I mean, Shane hadn't even told his parents. This was like a film where, you know, a lot of films are like, yeah, yeah, sign an NDA. We're actually doing this. This was a film where nobody knew and nobody could know. And that was challenging. How did you learn about the security that you wanted to put in place? Because, again, it's really interesting. We have VPNs. We don't have the level of security that you do. But it was such a steep learning curve for us to have apps on our phone that would sort of track whether we got any viruses on our phones or we were being bugged or hacked. And it was a huge upheaval and process for us to change and implement all of this security. How did you go about learning about what you needed to do to put that security in place? Our initial thing was this program offered by Doc Society called Safe and Secure. And this was a four-part course that they they gave us for free, which was a, a sponsored by one of the documentary foundations, which was really, really helpful. And then we had individual consultants. And some of the consultants were kind of like, yeah, fine, you know, just put on a VPN, everything from put on a VPN and use Signal to you better install cameras on your car. You poked the bear, get ready because the bear pokes back, you know? And after that call, I remember specifically, everyone was just totally freaked out. And we were like, okay, we're going to just compartmentalize that and do what we can do, which is obviously the digital stuff, et cetera. 
It feels very rational just sort of identifying what's in your control, how you can mitigate the risk, Mm -hmm. and then actioning on that rather than, as you say, thinking about all of the potentials that could happen. It's sort of, what is there that I can do to stay safe and action that? What happened after Sundance? Was HBO on board earlier or did they come on as Sundance picked up? How did that come about? So when we were in the Black Forest, towards the end of shooting, it was close to when Navalny was going back, Diane Becker arranged a call for Daniel and I to speak to Courtney Sexton and Amy Antellis about what we were doing because we obviously had no money. You know, it was me still putting it on my credit card at this point. And we needed support fast. But we had this call. We basically did it exhausted from the house with the suspect board on the back. It was, you know, Daniel and myself, we were like, we're here. This is happening. Alexei is going back. Like the story is sort of writing itself in a way, you know, although there was a lot of great stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. And they just loved it from that first phone call. So as soon as we finished shooting, we started cataloging and going through the footage and transcoding the footage, et cetera, in a massive scale. I had a huge translation team working, which was hard. We had to vet these translators, you know, we're sending them footage that was super secret. So I'd play these, I'd do a video chat with them and try and quiz them, you know? I had to do this for many of the people that we hired, the two DPs that I put on the plane back to Russia with Alexei. You know, I had to find a DP with a Russian passport because it was COVID. Russia was closed. Daniel and I wanted to go on the plane, but we couldn't. So I searched Berlin for two DPs with Russian passports. And I found these two guys who just ended up being gems, you know, but I had to sort of test them out first. And so I did a little FaceTime. I was like, yeah, we're doing this documentary, you know, I need you to go to Russia. It's sort of political, but um, what's your... What's your feeling about like Russian politics? One of the guys was like, oh, my politics? He was like, do you know this uh, politician Navalny? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think I've heard about him. <laughs> He's like, literally like <laughs> right next door. Think I've heard about this guy. Yeah, Navalny, you know, I've been watching all his YouTube videos for many years and and he's really good and I like what he says. I was like, oh, cool. Okay, yeah, I should check that. I should check him out. Yeah, so then I knew like, okay, this guy sounds good. <laughs> yeah, but these guys were great. Even once they got to Russia, I was like, hey, can you go and cover the protests? And one of them even got arrested because he had his camera around his neck. And Christo and I spent all night with the NGO searching the Russian jails for him. So this was just production, you know? I love how for us production is if a van gets bumped and we have to claim it on the insurance and yours is people are going missing because they're filming a protest in Russia. It's it's unbelievable what you had to navigate, especially as you mentioned, it's sort of your second or third documentary that you were doing. It must have been quite a steep learning curve dealing with all of those problems. Oh my God, it was, you know, and Daniel, the director, this was actually his second feature film also. So both of us were on our second feature films and we were just like, we say to each other now, we grew up on this film. I fully also had to learn from, you know, Diane, et cetera, the other producers that came on board after. But during those about four or five months in production, I mean, 
I had made one and a half documentaries at that point. So it was a steep learning curve. And I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm sure I took a lot of risks that a lot of people maybe wouldn't have if you're more seasoned. I don't know. But thank God it was like sort of the perfect storm. You know, one thing we said to Navalny the night we met him was we're not these famous filmmakers. We're just these two passionate young filmmakers. But we will promise you one thing. We will live and live and die for this film. And we did that every single day. It's amazing. And I'm sure that that was the reason that he believed in you and believed that you were going to tell this story so beautifully. What, from the whole experience, what was the biggest lesson that you learned that you would take onto your next production? Like I said in the beginning, follow your intuition and take risks. Just follow, follow a story. See where it goes. Because even if it doesn't end up in an incredible documentary, you're going to end up in an incredible life lesson. Yeah, so true. And I think if I had thought twice about it, well, anything from COVID, we were, we were in height of lockdowns, you know? There's just a lot of stuff we had to maneuver. And just if you thought about it twice, you might not have done it all. But in hindsight, I'm so glad and I wouldn't change a thing. The only thing I would change is maybe hiring a PA. <laughs> By the end of it, were you really burnt out? Yeah, I was so burnt out. I actually ended up in the hospital for a few days. Really? Yeah. I was really, it was really, really, I got sick. I got sick from the stress that I was carrying. Everything shut down. My digestive system, you know, the stomach holds so much tension. I got pretty sick. I was sick for a few months, a couple months, but just had to keep going. I worked while I was quite sick to get the film finished and got better. Now I'm fully better, fully recovered. But no, it was an insane amount of stress. And now I'm in trauma therapy also. I'm working on another film, which is also in similar realm. And the Rory Peck Foundation has actually granted us trauma therapy, which has been insightful as well, like dealing with leftover trauma from it. I mean, the physical health I had to deal with for the past year and a half, but now trying to deal with some of the mental health stuff. So yeah, there's, it takes a toll. It takes a toll, but the toll is worth it. And you can, you can rebound from it. You know, I'm fully fine. It's not like I have lasting damage. If anything, I'm better than I was before because I look at this world that I've created that I'm living in and it's just so extraordinary. I never thought that I would like be sitting here nominated for Academy Award or a BAFTA or anything like that. This was like a, like a dream that was just like a dream, you know, that every girl dreams. And one of those little things that you just sort of watch the Oscars with your grandma and go, oh. How does it feel to be nominated for an Oscar? It's extraordinary. But honestly, the greatest joy that I feel the one thing that I care about, because personally, it's like, you don't really notice much change. Like, oh, okay, I'm nominated for an Oscar one day to the next. Great, great. But what is so meaningful to me is that this means more people will see the film. You know, that is just what it means. Because documentaries, it's hard to get people to watch them, right? And this just means more people will see the film. And that to me, like more people will be touched by what Navalny stood for and what his message was and what he tried to impart to the world. That for me is so powerful. It's such a beautiful film. Thank you. And by the sounds of it, the journey and the emotional journey and the mental journey that you've gone through 
has been really hard and really challenging. So I just want to say thank you for your bravery as well, because I can imagine as a filmmaker, it hasn't been easy. And I guess my final question is, if there is one thing about this industry that you could change, what would it be? Honestly, I just wish that there was so much money in documentaries to just finance every single thought, adventure. Like, there's so much money in the world. Come on. Instead of investing in gold or the stock market or something, just throw it at these documentary filmmakers because you'll get some cinema gold out of it. And I wish we didn't have to, like, fight so hard to get these meaningful films financed, you know, it should be, these are the stories that change the world, that change the way people think, that change the way you make decisions. And yet, as you know, as a producer, as well as a filmmaker, you, you're just fighting for every dollar. And it's so sad because that part of society should be the most well-funded. And these stories are so important and it's the reason that I am in film is to tell stories that inspire change and to create discourse around narratives that are really important that need to be discussed and need to be talked about because ultimately film is such an important medium and it has the opportunity to educate people on really powerful and important messages. And ultimately the more funding and support that we have to be able to do that, the more we can do that. Yeah, and the more freedom we feel, like so many of these films, like they have to sort of stop because they don't have enough money. But if they had more money to continue on, you never know what you would get, you know? Adessa Ray, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. You are an incredibly inspiring filmmaker, and I have no doubt that this film will stand the test of time. Oh, thank you. For people who want to keep in touch with your news, where's the best place for them to look online? Well, I'm on Instagram, so it's really the only social media platform I use. I had to get off Facebook when all of this security stuff was going on because the Russian troll factory liked to use Facebook. So I do maintain my Instagram page, which is just like my name. You can find me. And I put a lot of things about the work that I'm making a couple other films right now. Like I said, I've been working on one in Ukraine for the last eight months and I'm doing another very top secret project with Shane Boris, my producing partner on Navalny. So we're very excited about that and there'll be more to come. That's super exciting. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. So listen, if you enjoyed this episode and you fancy subscribing, then that would be fantastic. But more importantly, if there's someone out there who you think might enjoy learning about these incredible filmmakers, please do send this series their way. Women Behind the Scenes was hosted by me, Eloise Singer. The executive producers are myself and Kathy Anderson. The producer is Ben Weaver-Hinks. Production manager is Hannah Alexander. Post-production was done by Matt McGuinness. Editing, mixing and mastering was by Tom Fred Bradshaw at iGame Audio. Music was from premiumbeat.com and our production assistant is Lucy Davidson. <laughs> <laughs>